0: Hi, this is John Grisham. Welcome to this week's edition of Book Tour. I am in Washington, D.C. at a famous bookstore, Politics and Prose, with one of my favorite writers, David Grant. We'd like to thank our presenting sponsor, Audible, for being part of this special series. One reason I do this is to showcase the the independent booksellers. And so um, I I have a chat with each one, and, and with you, Bradley, I'd like for you to tell us about Politics and Prose, how long you've been here, how long the store's been here, and just brag on your store,
1: okay? Well, let's see if I can do that, John. Uh, look, P&P is, uh, as many of you know, 33 years old. It's really become a, a, quite a fixture in, in Washington. Uh, I'm still a relatively newbie, uh, my wife and I both, to the uh, bookselling business. We uh, assumed ownership of p 6 years ago. You know, I was a journalist uh, for 30 years before that. My wife was a journalist and a, and a speechwriter. Uh, so we've been on a steep learning curve, but we timed our entry into the uh, book uh, store business uh, just right through really dumb luck. But back when we as- assumed ownership, 2010, 2011, you know there are a lot of dark clouds over the over the bookstore business, and um, uh, people were predicting that ebooks were going to push physical books uh, into oblivion. Uh, that hasn't happened. Uh, bookstores have rebounded, and P&P has enjoyed six years of of record sales. We're doing better than ever. Uh, We're we're soon even going to be expanding, opening uh, at least one uh, branch in in the Union Market area in northeast uh, northeast D.C. So thanks especially to all of you. Uh, Don't stop shopping and visiting with us now. And we hope to uh, to k- keep going for a lot longer.
0: So who st- who, who uh, started the original store?
1: Uh, original store started by two women uh, at the time in their mid to late forties, uh, Carla Cohen and Barbara Mead. Um, they were um, uh, they were quite qu- quite different actually. Uh, Carla was the uh, more effusive, opinionated one. Barbara was the more reserved and meticulous one. They made a great pair though. They both loved books and uh, just decided to. Um, to uh, open a store was Carla, who came up with the name Politics and Prose, which for a bookstore doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But it's... Um, <laughs> well, let me stop you right there. because It's, a, um, it's alliterative and emblematic.
0: Last <laughs> night, I signed books in Greensboro, North Carolina, at a store called Scuppernong.
1: Scuppernong.
0: <laughs> which is a grape somewhere in North Carolina used for wines. I, I didn't know they made a lot of wine in North Carolina. Uh, and I also signed uh, at a store called Lemuria, in Jackson, one of my favorite stores, Mississippi. I signed at Malaprops. Well. In Asheville. Yeah. Uh, so politics and prose is pretty mainstream. Compared to- <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, up north here.
0: It lacks a certain creativity, okay?
1: <laughs> yeah, anyway, it's worked. Uh, and it's, uh, we've, we've, we've not, never given any thought to changing it.
0: Uh, I was talking to your wonderful staff early in the afternoon when we were signing books, and I was meeting these wonderful people and just working like a dog up here. Um, <laughs> you guys do 500 events a year?
1: Oh, at least. I mean, we do, you- do every every night of the week, sometimes more than one, because we do events outside the store. Weekends, Saturdays, Sundays, we always do multiple events. And, uh, yeah, I mean— um, that's uh, one of the t- trademark features of PNP is our, 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 our many author events we do. So
0: you're doing 500 events a year. You're expanding. Sales are great. So you're making just buku's of cash, right?
1: Well, I wish. Um, <laughs> thank you for making that point, um, because <laughs> while while sales have risen year after year, so have expenses, especially payroll costs, but but also rent and, and other costs. So the margins are still very very narrow um we're in the black fortunately but it's uh you know we we can't take we can't take our eye off the ball
0: well again i've been here for a long time today signing books and i talked to a lot of your customers and you have some very loyal customers and very loyal fans wonderful bookstore Thank 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 you bradley uh i turn now to my um a friend, David Grant, who's uh, going to join me here on the stage, he's here to talk about uh, books, writing, stories, um, all kinds of stuff, right there? David is a, a staff writer for The New Yorker for well, how many years? Is that? 10,
2: 15? Uh, 203, oh, 14 two, years. I'm 14, 14 yeah, years. Yeah.
0: Uh, he's written some beautiful pieces, uh, informative pieces. He's written about sports, politics. He loves crime. I mean, he, lo- he loves he loves the gritty crime, uh, but a lot of politics and all, all aspects of American culture. And uh, before that, you were the senior editor for The New Republic. You've That's ri- correct, yeah. You've written for um, The Washington Post? Yeah. The Weekly Standard? Yep. Who
2: else?
3: Uh, Boston Globe, Wall Street Journal, uh, New
2: York Times Magazine, Atlantic. You can't keep a job, huh? Like, yeah.
3: <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
2: The life of a freelancer. Free, freelancer. <laughs> no buku money.
3: <laughs>
2: and no health care. <laughs> I've got a question for you, The New Yorker, uh, as, as, a,
3: as a staff writer, do you get to pick what's next? You know, it's interesting. Um, I think there are different writers who have kind of different modes of, of kind of operations. Um, there are some writers who I think the editors usually uh, often bring stories to. My stories tend to be a bit eccentric and um I tend to be somebody who finds my own stories, and for whatever reason, um, there's something about the process of finding the story and discovering it that creates an emotional connection to the material for me. That tends to kind of propel me to want to investigate it. Do you do you
2: keep a uh, a running list of potential stories that you're always?
0: Uh, I'm going I back. What kind of deadline pressure are you under to? write for the New Yorker.
2: Is it a story every other month? Is it five a year? Is it three a year? Yeah. I mean, so um,
3: early on, I used to do about uh, about four, uh, and often it's between three or four. Um, it depends how investigative it is. Um, we'll probably talk a little bit about the Willingham story. If it's very investigative, on a story like that, I spent probably about 10 months. Um, and... Uh, so it varies, and and uh, certain stories. If it's a sports story, it may take me three months. Investigative pieces can take me as long as ten months
2: to do. And you, uh, at what point does a a story
3: uh, become a book? That's a great question. You haven't written
0: very many books. No, you know? I'm, I'm point, way point, too slow. I need out.
3: to I need to improve my pace, like you. Um, uh, you know, it's interesting. My the. First book I did, The Lost City of Z, uh, which is about this, uh, thank you, about uh, this British um, explorer who disappeared in the Amazon in the 1920s looking for a lost city with his son. That began as a New Yorker piece, and it was the first time where I finished the story, and it ran pretty long in The New Yorker, probably ran about 20,000 words, um, where I really felt like there were still so many other places to go. Um, And I wasn't sick of the material sometimes when I finish. Um, So that was the first one um, where I really felt that often there are stories that I feel um, may be able to expand it in a book, but I might not want to spend years with the material. I did a story uh, for the New Yorker about uh, prison gangs and the Aryan Brotherhood um, and how they kind of forensically took over prisons. Uh, One of the most brutal prison gangs, uh, one of the most brutal gangs in in America, Um, but It was not something I really wanted to spend uh, years. I wonder why. Yeah. Didn't want to hang out with those guys, huh? Exactly.
0: So uh, uh, Z was your first book. Z was the first book, Came out in 09, I think.
3: Yes, that's right.
0: And it was uh, a wonderful book, an adventure, a great read. I thoroughly enjoyed the story. Um, In a thumbnail for those, we assume everybody here has read all of our books. But... Yeah. But we're not going to ask for a show of hands. I made that mistake one time, and I vowed to never do it again. <laughs>
2: Don't ever ask who's read the books. Yeah. Give us a give us a sketch of Lost City of Z, the, the, the basic story.
3: Yeah, so um, and this gets a little bit to how you kind of find a story. So I was doing a story for The New Yorker, a crime story about uh, the world's greatest uh, Sherlock Holmes uh, scholar and Coden Doyle scar- scholar. And uh, it's a true story. He was found dead in very mysterious circumstances. Um, he was found garroted in his apartment. And the case was taken up by all these uh, Sherlock Holmes scholars to try to solve. And in the course of researching that piece for The New Yorker, um, I read everything about Conan Doyle, Arthur Conan Doyle. And I came across a reference that The Lost World had been partly inspired by this man named uh, Percy Fawcett, um, this British explorer. And I had never heard of him. And so we had just gone at the New Yorker, these old uh, newspaper historical databases. And I put his name into the database because we were actually at an experiment with at the time. And um, up came all these crazy headlines, including in the New York Times, these banner headlines about this explorer, this kind of last of these terrestrial explorers. He had mapped most of the Amazon in the early 20th century. Um, And then he began to believe that there were these clues that led him to believe there was this ancient civilization, which he called rather cryptically the city of Z, whereas I later learned after the book came out, as the British refer to it as the city of Z. And um, <laughs> and he set off to find it. And he, he brought with him his, his oldest son, and his son's best friend, uh, and they disappeared. And it led to what was considered the greatest exploration mystery of the 20th century, um, both the mystery of what had happened to them, but also uh, the mystery of could this ancient civilization exist? And if it did, it would really transform our understanding of what the Americas looked like before the arrival of Christopher Columbus. And this
0: was uh, during the golden age of British worldwide exploration. And, yes. and the hub was the, uh, what was the society in London? It was the Royal Geographical Society, Geographical society. yeah. And they were they, you had these, these fearless explorers who were going all over the world. World, North North Pole, South they were all trying to outdo each other to explore and find something new. And Fawcett thought that there was a lost civilization in the Amazon, and he— you know, spent years trying to find it.
3: Yeah. And uh, I mean, in many ways, the, it's, it was such an unusual club. In many ways, it was these kind of deeply repressed Victorians and Edwardians who kind of wanted to flee their society and yet be revered by their society at the same time. And they would set off in all these places. But by the time Fawcett, by 1925, when Fawcett disappeared, most of the world had been mapped by then. And the Amazon, which is about the size of the continental United States, really remained this last large blank space on the map, at least to outsiders, a blank space. Um, and it was really such a dense, tenacious environment um, because of diseases at the time, uh, yellow fever, malaria. Um, it really remained largely unexplored, at least to outsiders. And Fawcett was kind of a madman. He would take these expeditions, uh, often of about a dozen people, um, and usually at least half of them would die of yellow fever, malaria. Starvation, snake bite, snake bite, you name it. And then what was amazing is, um, uh, you know, the research. I'm curious if, when you research the fiction as well. Like, I went to the Royal Geographic Society and you to see what would be there. And I found these incredible documents, which were these, they were called hints for travelers. And essentially, they were these guidebooks that, um, that the explorers back then it would train them. How to be an explorer, and Fosse would bring this book with him. And I was reading, you know, his edition that he brought with him. And it would tell him, basically, you know, if he was bitten by a snake, to take gunpowder, pack it into the wound, and ignite it. Or <laughs> it, if he was hit by a, uh, if he was hit by a poisonous arrow, to take boiling grease and pour it into the wound to cauterize it. And and you get what was amazing about these documents is you really get a sense of, you know, just Really, a century ago, how primitive modern medicine still was uh, for these people going off on these trips.
2: You don't really come out
0: and say it, but you believe that Fawcett
2: and his son were eaten by cannibals.
3: Probably not necessarily eaten, but uh, <laughs> but I do uh, believe they were um, killed by a group of uh, an indigenous community in the in the jungle. There was a so I did something very foolish um, in the book, uh, or in the pursuit of the book, in the pursuit of the story, which is when I began the book. Um, I was going to do it as kind of a straight biography, uh, in a way very suited for my very paltry physical attributes. Um, and it was going to be basically in libraries at the Royal Geographical Society. Um, and there came a certain point, I tracked down uh, Fawcett's uh, granddaughter who lived in Wales. And when I went out there uh, and visited with her, I told her about my interest in Fawcett. And she said, well, you really want to know what happened to my grandfather? And I said, well, sure. And she led me into this back room, uh, and in this back room, there was this old chest. And she opened up the old chest. And inside them were these old little books. They were covered in dust. They were held together by these ribbons. They were breaking apart. I said, what are they? She said, well, those are my grandfather's secret diaries and log books. And in a way, as a writer, these are, you know, my Z. And, um, and, and, they, and they held enormous clues, both to his life and also to his death, because he was very secretive about where he w- was going in the jungle, and it had his roots. And so it was at that point where I decided to do something very foolish and uh, decided to try to follow in his uh, footsteps. And as you could tell, I'm not really cut out for that. (laughs) I'm glad this is on radio and not.
2: (laughs) I see you in a helicopter. That would be. I see you as the explorer who's in a helicopter doing
0: a quick little flyover.
3: Okay. But but to get to your question, I I I went on this uh, trail and I met with. a, a, a tribe, the um, Kalapalos. And what's amazing is you don't really know, you know, it's different than fiction because you don't know, well, maybe you don't know where you, where it's going to go. So, but with nonfiction, you don't always know what's going to happen. You've got to roll the dice. You don't know, what, you know am I going to find anything? It's going to be a total disaster. And, um, but I met with the Kalapalos and they had an oral history about Fawcett. And, um, you know, I'm a reporter, so I'm a, always skeptical. I always try to corroborate stories. And this oral history Um, was about Fawcett and his son and his friend coming through. Um, They were the first or among the first white people they had ever seen. And so they had recorded this. And it had a detail in it, which had never been made public, but I knew because I had a letter that was in that chest that Fawcett had written to his wife, describing how he brought a little recorder with him to play in the jungle so that he wouldn't go mad in the solitude of the jungle. And in this oral history, it describes Fawcett playing his little recorder. So I said... This has veracity. This is unbelievable. And in that oral history, it describes uh, Fawcett coming through and how they insisted on heading eastward toward what they referred to as the fierce Indians. And they tried to dissuade them from heading in that direction. And then they, but Fawcett insisted upon going and they could see his fire rising above the forest uh, for several days. Uh, And then suddenly the fire went out and the implication of the story when they went to see them was that they were killed.
0: Once he disappeared, um, uh, dozens of British explorers tried to go find him.
3: Yes, yes. He became like – it was interesting too because it was it, what was interesting about that period of time and a little bit um, – it really was the beginning of mass communication. And in a weird way, this story, while totally forgotten by the time I started researching it, when I called it into the newspaper database, the reason all these articles came up is it was really one of the first – major collective world kind of serials. Um, Fawcett was partly sponsored by a syndicate. Um, there were telegraphs at the time. And so Fawcett, um, because he was paid by the, 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 funded by the syndicate, he would um, write dispatches on his expedition and he would hand these to um, natives that he would find and they would run them out in the jungle. And then they would get to a little town and then they'd get from another town to another town. And then they'd be typed up in a telegraph and they would then be broadcast. And so people were reading about this expedition as it was happening, although with a three-month delay, um, uh, as was happening, it became like a serial. And I found articles about it on every single continent and people were consumed by it. And then suddenly they just stopped and there was not a word, and so it engendered an enormous fascination. So back then, if you say, it was like saying, if you joke, where was Fawcett buried? It'd be like saying, where's Jimmy Hoffa buried to us. Everybody knew it was like, a you know, and it it showed up in, in literature, Evelyn Waugh, there was a Tintin episode with Fawcett. People would go in search of him. One of the articles that first came up in the database that made me want to go do the story was there was a movie, a two bit movie star who um, wanted to see if he could kind of make his fame finding Fawcett. And he went and he disappeared. I mean, others disappeared as well.
0: Well, Speaking of movies, yes,
2: it was filmed. It was released yes. uh, a few months ago. Yes, was that a good experience? It
3: was. It was. I feel although um, the fun, I I sold the rights to the that book back in uh, 2008 before it came out, and I at the time I was really excited. Um, I was new to the whole movie business, and um, I thought, oh my gosh! And I they called me. It was Brad Pitt's production company, and um, You know, I was really excited, and uh, uh, James Gray was going to direct. And so I got off the phone with him. I told my wife, they're making a movie, and it's going to be out next year. And uh, so 2000, what was that, 2009 came, 2010, 2011, and then in 2017, it finally came out. And I basically realized that uh, making a movie is harder than finding a lost city in the jungle.
2: (laughs) Well, I I didn't see the movie. I, I saw it, the reviews.
0: It came to our uh, you know local cinema, and and I told my wife I wanted to go see it, and we we're always arguing about what to go see, <laughs> and before I knew it, it was gone. I mean, it didn't it didn't yeah. have a,
2: much of a life. No, to, no okay. it was really short. Yeah. Did you like the movie?
3: I did, I did. Okay. Yeah, it's very different, but it's a nice compliment. I'll now, them. now let me ask you. I want to let's turn this around a little bit. So, how do you feel? It's a strange experience when you write. I will say this: it's a very strange experience when you write something and then you go and see it. Um, how has that been for you when you? write a book and then suddenly see it in kind of these three different kind of this different medium. It is a very different medium. People think it's the same. It's very different.
0: Yeah. I don't, I, it's hard to say how you, you know, how I feel about it. I felt differently when the firm came out in 1993, because the first time we saw it, we we'd been to the set a few times in Memphis when they were filming it. We met all the people who were doing it, the cast. That was fun. The kids were small, you know, it was a big deal. Um, and, for some reason, the first time we saw it was in a black-tie uh, fancy fundraiser in a big place in New York City with the worst possible place to see one of your own movies. Uh, and, but we were, we didn't know any better. And we were excited to be there. And the thrill of watching your, your, your novel on in a big Hollywood production uh, outweighed uh, reservations I had about what they did with it for the <laughs> <laughs> For the most part, it was fun. It was fun to watch. Uh, they changed some things at the end, but um, they're always going to change it. Yeah. Okay, they're, they're going to change. It's their vision of, of, your, of your story, and if you don't, if you don't want to do that, then don't sell the film rights. And I learned that lesson early on, and uh, over the years, I've been I've been very lucky dealing with Hollywood. I've had um, good success. I've enjoyed almost watching all the movies, almost all of them. And I just don't. Once I sell the film rights, I I, I try to sell the rights to good people, and to talented people, and stay away from it. And uh, I don't want to spend time reading scripts or making notes because they ignore them anyway. You know, Uh, I I don't. The more clout you get, the more veto power you have, the more you get involved in the process of making movies. And that's not something I know how to do. I don't want to learn. I've got better things to do. I've got more books to write. And the business has changed so much now that we can't get a movie made. It's been 15 years since Mm -hmm. there there was an adaptation. And and they're all for sale. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Because as writers, we would would love to see all of our books filmed and adapted into a good movie because we all love good movies. Uh, But Hollywood has changed so much uh, in the last 20 years that it's just – it's. It's very difficult. I mean, it's 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 hard to get a movie made. I've got, I have four under contract right now. Uh, and they're in production, which means nothing is happening, uh, and so nothing will be filmed this year, 2017. I'll be shocked if anything is filmed next year, 2018. And we're going on 15 years since the last movie, and and even given the success that the early ones had, it's um, it's hard to believe that they don't get. That model, but they don't get that model, and so I I, I can't control that. You got to write a comic book. It, well, they would they, rather spend the big money on Superman or Spider Man Five or whatever, yeah. and and uh, that there, there's so few, as we know, so so yeah. few good adult dramas being made, and, and you can't find one this weekend. Yeah. So, all right, back to back to your current <laughs> book on the bestseller list. Yeah. Uh, Killers of the Flower Moon is another true story
2: that. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. A great book, great story. Uh, first of all, how did you find that story?
3: Um, you know, it's funny. I, I found that story. You know, I always say, the, the, going back to your first question, how do I find stories? And um, for me, it is the hardest part. I don't know with fiction if coming up with the ideas are the same. For me, it is the hardest part. I think partly out of some degree of insecurity that um, if I don't have something interesting You know, I won't be able to make it interesting on my own. I need something that's an interesting story. So I always look very hard for stories. Um, I read a lot of newspapers. I often say the best stories come out of briefs, which are like the little one-inch story in metropolitan newspapers. Now, sadly, a lot of the metropolitan newspapers are dying, but um, have often generated stories for me. The prison gang story came out of a one-inch brief uh, in a California newspaper. And then I also call people. I will randomly call people who I think might be interesting. Um, this was a case where I learned that the FBI had an internal historian. And I read that someone. I said, God, that is so strange. Who knew? I didn't know they had an institutional historian. And I just co-called him. And I said, my name is David Grant. I'm a writer. Um, I'm always looking for ideas. So there are kind of many interesting cases in the Bureau's history. We talked a lot about the uh, call pro and other stuff. At the very end, he said, yeah, there was this old case, this old sage murder case. I don't know much about it. And I said, huh, that's interesting. And I... That set me off. And then, um, as I describe in the book, I, it really began. I, at that point, I didn't know whether I would do it. I made this trip out to the Osage Nation in, in Oklahoma. And um, I visited the museum. And at that point, I was trying to decide whether there would be a story, whether there would be material. And um, I visited the museum and um, saw this great panoramic photograph that was on the wall. It was taken in 1924. Uh, it showed um, members of the tribe along with white settlers and it looked very innocent, um, but a portion of the photograph was missing. And I asked the museum director, who I was just meeting for the first time, she would later become a friend of mine, Catherine Redcorn, I said, what happened to that part of the photograph? And uh, she said uh, it contained a figure so frightening that she decided to remove it. And then she pointed to the missing panel, and she said the devil was standing right there. And she then went down into the basement, and it contained an image of, one of the killers, one of the masterminds of the Osage killings. And just for people who aren't familiar, it's about the Osage Indians who uh, in the 1920s, um, had early 20th century, become the wealthiest people in the world uh, because of oil under their land. They lived in mansions. They had white servants.
0: But they, they were shoved away on reservations uh, given the worst land exactly, yeah. <laughs> 130 years <laughs> ago Yeah. and you know, given the, the leftovers. And then oil was found. Yeah, they so were suddenly they
2: had uh, they were very wealthy.
3: Yeah, yeah, they were. They their fate was very similar to many American Indian nations. Um, they once controlled much of the Midwest, um, but then they were pushed off their land. Um, they were bunched into a reservation in Kansas. They were under siege again. There was a massacre, um, and they had to search for a new homeland. It was then that this Osage chief stood up, and there's still a transcript of what he said. And he said. Um, we should move to this territory and what was then Indian territory would later become a part of Oklahoma. He said we should go there because the land is rocky and hilly and infertile and the white people consider it worthless and essentially they'll leave us alone. My people will be happy in this land. And so they migrated there and there's only about 2000 or a few thousand of them by then. Um, all They had suffered terribly there was disease and hunger. Um, and then lo and behold, this land turned out to be sitting upon uh, these deposits of oil and then they, began, they became incredibly wealthy, which belied all these long-standing stereotypes of Native Americans. Um, all these reporters would head out to the territory, describe the quote-unquote plutocratic Osage and the red millionaires with their mansions, their servants. Uh, the fact that many of the servants were white um, uh, provoked all sorts of reactions among many white Americans at the time. And then they began to be serially murdered um, in one of the most sinister crimes in American history.
0: There was a law back in Oklahoma that an Indian, a Native American, could not be in charge of his own money. He yeah. had to have a guardian who was some local white guy <laughs> who, who took charge of his money. It was a very convenient law. It was
3: for it, the white folks. Yeah, it was, I mean, every story is a process of discovery. Um, and I didn't know, obviously, anything about this. And I was shocked to discover that this was a law. And I then pulled the records of congressional testimony, where members of Congress would sit in these committee rooms and discuss what are we going to do about those Osage Indians with all their money. And they went so far as to pass these laws that required them to have white guardians. Now, this law, as I discovered, was not abstractly racist. It was literally racist. It was based on the quantum of Osage blood. So if you were a full-blooded Osage, you were deemed, quote-unquote, incompetent, and you were given a guardian to determine and oversee how you spent your money. So you could be a great Osage chief leading a great nation, have millions in your trust, and you would have a white man There were men— Telling you whether you could buy this car or that car, whether you could even get this toothpaste down at the corner store, and this system wasn't just racist. It really created one of the largest state and federally sanctioned criminal enterprises because the guardians ended up swindling millions of dollars from the Osage,
0: and their favorite tactic was murder. They yeah. had to, to kill them off. A lot of it, a lot of them were poisoned.
3: Yeah, that was, you know, that was one of the other thing that was kind of shocking, which was, and um, we talked a little bit how primitive medicine was when I talked about the hints for travelers. And this is the same time period and how primitive um, law enforcement was back then in terms of its incompetence, its poor training, the levels of corruption, how lawless this country was uh, back then, um, how fragile The legal institutions were. And so poisoning became one of the prime modes of killing because um, they wouldn't perform toxicology. Now, scientists already knew how to do a toxicology. You could identify most poisons, but the local lawmen would never perform it. So you could poison someone very easily, get it right down at the, at the, at the corner store. um, And, or you could spike the liquor, um, and nobody would perform a test. Um, and so poisoning became, and one of the poisonings, um, they used strychnine, which for those who read Agatha Christie mysteries know, it's just a really awful, awful poison. It, it causes the whole body to convulse as if with electricity. Um, there was an Osage steer roper who was given this. His body convulsed, um, and, and you're conscious uh, during this process, uh, while you suffocate, uh, so it's just an awful way to kill someone, um, and 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 poisoning. But there was such a cavalierness to these murders. So, I mean, poisoning involves some level of discretion, but there was even a bombing. I mean, they they they. I mean, I write a lot in the book about this this really remarkable woman, Molly Burkhart, this Osage woman who was born in a, a, a lodge uh, in the 1880s. and then within a few decades, because of the oil money, she's married to a white settler. She lives in a, a really big house. And one by one, her family members are dying. There's a poisoning. There's a shooting. Um, But she had a sister named Rita, a younger sister. And Rita was so frightened by the deaths in the family, she had moved uh, from the countryside into town to be closer. And um, and one day at 3 in the morning, Molly hears this loud explosion. She gets up. She goes to the window. She looks out in the direction of her sister's house. And all she can see is this orange ball rising into the sky. And somebody had planted a bomb underneath the house, uh, killing her sister or sister's husband, and an 18-year-old white maid uh, who was living there, uh, who had left behind two young children. And so this was happening um, with just an astonishing frequency, and the period became known as the Osage Reign of Terror. And, you know, one of the things that, again, was kind of really shocking to me when I learned about this story, when I went to the Osage Museum, and they showed, when I saw that photograph, and... The Osage had removed that photograph um, because it was so painful, because they couldn't forget what happened. And yet most of us, including myself, knew nothing about this. And so, um, you know, you, you begin stories for different reasons, but this story partly was to address my own ignorance.
1: Support for Book Tour with John Grisham comes from Audible.
4: As Trey left the building, he heard the first wave of panicked voices. He stepped behind some shrubs near the dorm pulled a disposable phone out of his pocket, called Princeton's 911 service, and delivered the horrifying news. There's a guy with a gun on the second floor of McCarran. He's firing shots. Smoke was drifting from a second floor window. Jerry, sitting in the dark study carol in the library, made a similar call from his prepaid cell phone. Soon, calls were pouring in as panic gripped the campus. Every American college has elaborate plans to handle a situation involving an active gunman, but no one wants to implement them. It took a few dumbstruck seconds for the officer in charge to push the right buttons, but when she did, sirens began wailing. Every Princeton student, professor, administrator, and employee received a text and email alert. All doors were to be closed and locked. All buildings were to be secured.
1: If that story from John Grisham's Camino Island made you feel something, hear what an entire Audible book can do. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial by visiting www.audible.com slash Grisham. That's audible.com Grisham.
0: You, you're not really clear about this because you can't be clear because it's, at least the numbers aren't there. But um, toward the end of the book, you, you sort of make predictions as to how many people were murdered. Yeah. And it's not a small number.
2: No.
3: It's several hundred. Yeah. not more. So, so the, the, it became one of the FBI's first major homicide cases, um, for various reasons, but, um, they were a pretty ragtag operation back then, um, had only a smattering of agents and, uh, they had very limited jurisdiction over crimes, but they had jurisdiction over, um, American Indian reservations. And so this case fell to them and initially they badly kind of bungled the case, but, um, They were able to capture several of the killers. Um, They turned the investigation uh, eventually over to a kind of a frontier lawman who conducted a a very good investigation, put together an undercover team. Um, They went in as cattlemen. Uh, One one went in as an insurance salesman. Um, At that time, uh, the official estimates were more than two dozen murders. Um, And they were able to capture some of the killers, including— the picture of that person who had been cut out of the photograph, the so-called devil, as the museum director referred to him. Um, But one of the things I learned in the process of my research from meeting with the Osage, um, from getting um, trails of evidence from them by spending really many years in archives, um, was that there really was a much deeper, darker conspiracy than the Bureau ever exposed, and that this was much less a story about who did it than who didn't do it and that um, there were doctors who administered poisons, there were lawmen on the take, there were reporters who didn't tell the truth, there were judges on the take, there were sheriffs on the take, um, there were guardians who were on the take. Um, this was really about a culture of killing, um, and um, and, the, and, the, and the real death toll was in, in the scores and, and, and probably hundreds.
0: Well, it's a fascinating book and a great read and Congratulations on his success. Thank you. Uh, about five or six years ago, you wrote a piece, a long piece, like 20,000 words for The New Yorker called Trial by Fire, which is the story of the uh, execution in Texas of a guy named Cameron Todd Willingham. Um, and you sort of exposed the – it was an arson case – the bad junk science behind his conviction. And you um, you come very close to saying uh, that in this case, Texas did finally execute an innocent man. I'm on the board of the Innocence Project in, in New York, have been for 10 years. I wrote a book called The Innocent Man. It was published 11 years ago. And so I've. I've this is something I'm very uh, much involved in. When I read your article, and, and for other reasons, I've always um, – ask myself the question, in this country uh, one day we're going to wake up and we're going to know by clear DNA proof, clear biological proof, that we've just executed the wrong person. And So the question is, what what do we do as a culture, as a society, as a people when that happens? And uh, I I don't know what's going to happen. I can't can't answer that. Um, I have come to believe that not much is going to change. Although we, we see far fewer death verdicts every year. Uh, and there's uh, some reasons behind that. We think we understand, uh, there are fewer executions every year. Um, but what will happen someday when we get in a hurry, like Arkansas just tried to do killing, uh, eight people in 10 days, they managed to get four of them. Um, but you know, wh- wh- what are we going to do? So I wrote a book called "The confession set it in Texas. And it was an exploration of how wrongful convictions happen. They, in, any, in any case, there are seven or eight things that go wrong to, to lead to a wrongful conviction. And they usually, you know, usually five or six of them are in play, whether it's um, bad science or bad defense lawyering or uh, jailhouse snitches or uh, that's the, a that's the long, sad list. But I wrote the book to show a wrongful, a wrongful execution, wrongful conviction, Wrongful execution, and 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 what would happen afterwards, and so that was that was the reason I wrote the book, and it was also inspired by your story because uh, Cameron Todd Willingham, in your opinion, and, and in the opinion of many many people, many experts, was innocent. Yeah. Uh, could you give us, for the benefit again of those people who have not read everything that you've written, um, there could be a few of them. Um, Give us the the factual scenario behind that crime, sure. alleged crime.
3: Yeah, so um, Cameron Taunt Willingham uh, lived in uh, Corsicana, Texas. Had uh, three kids. He was married. Had a you know was no choir boy. Choir boy uh, hit his wife. Kind of drank. Um, and one day in uh, 1991, uh, just before Christmas, um, fire starts to be seen coming from their their house um some neighbors then see him screaming fire fire um breaking windows trying to kind of get inside um he barely got out he barely got out he yeah. he was napping or something and, yes and they the were sleeping w- in the morning yep and he got out and um his the wife was not there she was not in the house at the time um and the three daughters ended up perishing in this fire and um not long after Um, some fire investigators come in um, and begin to look through the house and they find what they believe are clear uh, evidence of arson. Uh, Just to give you an example, so so this isn't, so it's a little concrete. They found, for example, this um, spider web pattern on the glass and they said, well, that happens, these people have been told that that happens when there is really intensive heat from an accelerant, an artificial accelerant, you get this kind of pattern. So this was one of the signs. They found what they believe were these kind of puddle patterns on the floor that they thought was evidence that somebody had poured an accelerant. Based on this, um, if, the, if this fire had been set, um, the only other person known to have been in the house was Cameron Todd, um, and he becomes immediately a suspect. And they end up also getting a jailhouse snitch to say he confessed. And he is convicted, and he ends up spending um, more than a a decade on death row, all the while always protesting his innocence. Uh, In fact, his defense attorney tried to get him to plea, and he refused at the time. And his uh, lawyer
0: believed he was guilty.
3: His lawyer believed he was guilty up to the end. Um, Shortly, he then met uh, a a woman, got to know him, um, and began to look into his case. um, And they eventually uh, bring the evidence of the fire to a a leading uh, fire investigator. In Texas. In Texas. And he looks at the evidence and realizes that this is based on total junk science that has all now since been discredited. Let's take, for example, that he actually did experiments for me, but let's take that spider web pattern. So it turned out that for a long time, arson scientists, well, they shouldn't be called, they really weren't scientifically trained, Um, but people who practice um, uh, arson investigations were told that the spider web pattern was from heating. Well, At some point there was a a forest fire out in California and a bunch of fire investigators went to these houses and and they found this pattern and they said, but wait a second, this is just a natural forest fire. Why in these houses did this pattern appear? And if there was no accelerant and then they said, huh, but it wasn't in all the houses. It was only in the houses where the firemen had gotten there with hoses. It wasn't caused from too much heating it was caused from the sudden cold spell of water. So science later came in to reveal that these uh, emblems or these, these things were really based on junk science. Another example were these puddle patterns. Well, they conduct an experiment where at a certain point when you've seen a house explode from fire, um, when, the, when it becomes so intense of the heat, they did an experiment with this. And you get all of those patterns. They're just a natural byproduct of the fire. And what it really turned out and what I discovered, and I'd really be curious about John, because, again, I was really didn't know anything about this at the time. But, you know, again, you realize how fragile certain institutions are. Most of these investigators had a high school education. They were not scientifically trained. And, um, but they locked in on the exterior. This, it was basically just folklore that had been passed down for generations and science had then subsequently come in and disproven this. So this scientist terrified that an innocent man is about to be executed, um, rushes to get his report to his attorney, to get it to the governor of Texas, to get at least a stay on the execution. Um, but it was simply ignored and he was executed. And, um, the, I checked down the jailhouse informant, I'm sure John will have a lot to say about jailhouse snitches. Um, but you know, the guy basically told me he lied <laughs> and he, 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 just, you know, I mean, it was ridiculous and, uh, he, he, yeah, he, he I mean, there was no, so there, there, I have no doubt that, you know, we don't have a, we don't have, um, uh, you know, a, a video camera and we don't have, let's say DNA um, but there's absolutely no evidence that this, f- there's no motive. There's, there's no, no motive. There's nothing. I mean, you there's just th- wake up one morning. Three and children, the- three little girls. Yeah. What's, what's no. the motive
0: in killing, burning no. up three children?
3: Yeah, no. And, but there's no evidence. The fire was intentionally set. I mean, it was, it was an accidental fire. And, and it, after the, after the
0: fire, you had this the horrible tragedy of three children burning up and the whole town is small, small town in, in rural Texas. Um, and the whole town is, you know, horrified because mm-hmm. they've lost these children and, and uh and he was not arrested, uh you know he was not suspected until the first arson expert came to town the fire expert came yeah. to town, and when he uttered the word "arson, everything changed. yeah and the eyewitnesses who who saw the fire and saw Cameron Todd uh screaming trying to get in the house changed their testimony to where he was more subdued and carefree. It, it, yeah. the whole
2: thing changed, changed. because yeah. suddenly it was a
3: capital murder case, yeah. And it was it's it's a and tunnel vision set in and the and and the fact they got this jailhouse informant it was 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 kind of outlandish the man was mentally unbalanced and clearly lied and he later recanted and yet, um, and and you know this story probably changed my changed me as a writer and reporter more than anything I've ever done because up until that point I I don't want to say I was more arrogant but. About the kind of powers of human perceptions, and what I realized was just how fallible our, our our memories are, our witness testimony is. So I looked at the eyewitness testimony, and the first people who gave the testimony said, "Oh, he was hysterical. Camera time, willing. He was trying to get in the house." Once they were then later investigated and told, oh, we suspect this man, he's, you know, they, they said, oh, you know, he he was so cold, he didn't care. The same—one was even a priest. And you just—and you're watching the change in testimony, you just start to say, wow, how fallible our, our, our perceptions are. And then one of the things for me, and I, I'd be interested to get your comments in, on, on your—the case you worked on as well, because— You know, I've done a lot of crime stories over the years and a lot of the crimes I focus on, I've always thought of basic certain human drives that compel people. Lust, greed, uh, envy, um, avarice, uh, prejudice. Um, But one thing I had not factored in and what really became apparent in this case, because for years later and to this day, people will not admit the error in this case, and in fact have actively tried to cover up the fact that an innocent man was put to death. And to me, that is even more shocking than the errors that contributed to it, because now we know we have the power of hindsight, and yet there is some human part of people that won't admit it. I was curious in your case how the, how, you know, in your case there was DNA evidence. There's no question. Right,
0: right. In Ron Williamson's case, which was the innocent man, we had clear DNA evidence that exonerated him and also implicated the real killer who is now serving a life sentence. And and, and the real killer was the last person seen alive with the victim outside of a nightclub in in a small town in Oklahoma. And the cops didn't suspect him, but he turned out to be the uh, killer proven by DNA. But what the the reason, and, and, and I deal with a lot of wrongful conviction cases on the Innocence Project, you will never see a prosecutor Uh, accept responsibility. You'll never see the police uh, admit they were wrong. You will never see anybody apologize because the uh, mistakes are so big and the the stakes are so great. You're talking about uh, human life. Ron Williamson uh, came within five days of being executed uh, after only serving in prison for three or four years. I, I interviewed the federal judge who issued the stay and saved his life. And I asked him, I said, okay, but if you, if you hadn't stopped the execution with five days to go, just, somebody would have, would have appealed that to the 10th Circuit Court in Denver, and, and the thing would have been stopped. He said, oh, no, under our rules of procedure back then, if I had not stopped Ron's execution when I did with five days to go, he would have been executed, okay? okay? And so that's how close he came. Even even when Ron was executed walked out of the courtroom – um no one's ever good no one ever apologized because they never apologize. It, it just doesn't happen. and no prosecutor will ever be punished for putting together a blatantly bogus case and it happens all the time, okay? Uh, you never see the police uh, punished for for perjury, for withholding evidence, for creating evidence, for all the things they do for, you can't even prove some of the things they do with snitches. They'll go to a, every jail has a, has a, a druggie who's facing more time. And all you got to do is go to him and say, Hey man, you know, if, if you will help us, if you'll cooperate with us, um, we'll cut your sentence. And so they throw this guy in the jail cell with the defendant, the suspect, and, and they feed him, uh, details about the crime, the, the, the snitch. And before long, within 24 hours, the snitch pops out and says, "Hey, he 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 told he confessed. <laughs> he told me about the entire crime. I know the details." <laughs> yeah. And off yeah. they go. And you know, and and the, the suspect doesn't know even know who he's talked to. Yeah, this
3: the case of Willingham. He didn't even knew
2: the guy.
0: <laughs> he Didn't know the guy. Didn't
2: see him for six
3: <laughs> yeah. months. He
0: goes to trial. They bring the guy in with a shirt and tie on yeah. and a haircut, and he does a real good job. And said, "Oh yeah, Willingham told me all about that. All about the, the arson, yeah. how he set the fire, yeah. blah blah blah." And the jury is sitting there. Uh, first of all, the judges should never allow that type of testimony, but they do because they're asleep. Uh, in so many cases, when you have junk science, bad scientists, um, bad defense lawyers, um, informant snitches all the, the judges sitting there I don't know what he's doing he's, he's sitting there sound asleep letting all this crap come in and that's how these wrongful convictions happen yeah. don't get me started okay yeah. I'm yeah. so a
3: well you know the crazy thing in the Willingham case they never had a motive so there was no motive and it was based on junk science so they kind of worked backwards to find one and in that case you know they talked about his um he had these rock and roll posters I can't even remember where they were they weren't even wasn't even like Ozzy Osbourne it was like a but it was some heavy metal band on satanic, they, satanic worship they said he was some because it made no sense. And uh, you could just see the process. And they had a, what I found so tragic is, you know, I guess it's my naivete and why you're kind of a reporter and you write these stories and you hope that they'll bring some change. And it got to your question, what would happen if we knew? And I do think the Willingham case has brought A good deal of change in terms of better understanding of arson science. But it's so slow and there's such resistance. There was a commission set up in Texas that was investigating the Willingham case. But because there was a question of did um, Rick Perry, um, you know, ignore the stay or the evidence at the time, it became politicized he he pushed off um uh, some of the commissioners, and he basically squelched it and I just thought, you know to me that's just such an awful secondary crime because there is a lot that can be learned from that case and should be learned.
0: Question for you when you're investigating something like this where where people are still alive uh with shit, those guys are all dead and they can't sue you and i know you I know you've been we've both had trouble with lawsuits um and, <laughs> But uh, but in, in in the Willingham case, when you're in the small town of Corsicana, of Corsicana,
4: mm-hmm.
0: of Corsicana, Cors, uh, Corsicana,
4: I go Cors, with whatever you go with. Cors, Corsicana, <laughs> Corsicana, Texas.
0: How, how do you how do you survive in a place like that when you're snooping around asking you know these uh, dangerous questions?
3: You know, it was interesting when I showed up. Um, the case had been so dormant, and it really wasn't a lot of friggin'. I interviewed everybody involved. Um, I even tracked down the the snitch. Um, I spoke to the prosecutor at the time, um, and everybody talked to me, uh, pretty frankly. Interestingly enough, the person who was most hostile, and then it g- which got to my question, was actually his early defense attorney. And I've, I've, I've interviewed many people over the years. I, 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 I was, you know, never quite interviewed anyone like that. He just, from the moment I even asked him a question about it, this was before that he just started cursing me.
0: But he thought he, he thought uh, he Willingham want, was guilty.
3: He thought he was advised guilty. him to plead guilty. He advised him to plead guilty, okay. and he just cursed me and didn't want. And that was that part where I got to that question. That was a it was it was a reaction that I had not anticipated or expected. The fear of, of have made now I understand the gravity of the errors. So I I get that, but nonetheless, I guess I would think that people would want to address the issue forthrightly to correct it. But then I'm naive, I guess. Right, when
0: I did uh, the Innocent Man in a small town in Oklahoma, uh, I never spent the night. I was, I was warned by a lawyer friend, don't spend the night there because if they know you're in town, when, when I when I bought the film rights, I bought the film rights, uh, book rights. Um, when I bought the book rights, uh, I was you know it was something it was in the newspaper, so they knew I was coming, and um, I was very I tried to be very careful. I always had somebody with me. But it was uh, it was kind of spooky at times when you go into a small town and you start investigating, digging for proof that they've made these
2: horrible mistakes. It's uh, it's it's kind of nerve wracking. There's a resistance. I would say the only time I've
3: really been scared it was actually the prison gang story, um, because they do hunt you down and 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 get you. And that was the one time. It was interesting. The people I was writing about were behind bars, but it was the most time, most I've ever been scared about writing about certain people. You ever been threatened? Yes. Yeah, that story.
2: More than once? I mean, by, by, the, by the Aryan Brotherhood? The Aryan Brotherhood, they were intimated threats to me. Um,
3: and I alerted a prosecutor in that case to, to one of them. Okay. Yeah.
2: On that
0: note, we will end. We're out of time. And uh, I want to thank David Grand for being here. And politics you so much. and pros. Bradley, thanks for having thank
2: us.
3: Thank you.
0: We'll see you guys uh, on the road or on a book tour. Take care.
3: Thank you all for coming.
0: Thanks to my guest, David Grand and the staff here at Politics and Pros, the volunteers, and all the great customers. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other episodes of Book Tour with John Grisham. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcast. Thanks to the folks at Digital Media for their production work, and thanks to our sponsor, audible.com. See you next week, On the Road with Book Tour.